0: You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead, the founding director of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace and Social Justice. We are delighted to have this conversation with you to talk about racism, to talk about Baltimore, to talk about redlining and to talk about inner city apartheid. Uh, The best person that I could think of is the person who's joining us today. Dr. Lawrence Brown is the proud grandson of Mississippi and Arkansas Delta sharecroppers and preachers. From 2010 to 2019, Dr. Brown worked at Morgan State University in the School of Community Health and Policy as a postdoctoral fellow, an assistant professor, and an associate professor. In June of 2018, Dr. Brown was honored by OSI Baltimore with the Bold Thinker Award for sparking critical discourse regarding Baltimore's racial segregation. In September, 2018, he was named number 61 in the Route 100 list, an annual list of the most influential African-Americans ages 25 to 45. Dr. Brown is the founding director of the Baltimore Black Butterfly Academy and is the author of The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America, which was just recently published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Dr. Brown, how are you?
1: Good day. How are you? I'm great.
0: I'm delighted to have you here to kind of talk us through exactly what we should be thinking about when it comes to inner city racism, to Baltimore apartheid, and to some of the terms that you actually launched and founded. So let's start there. Can you talk with us about what it means to have the black butterfly and the white owl?
1: well i think you know first of all thank you for having me it's a real pleasure to be here and i'm just very thankful uh to have the opportunity today to talk about baltimore apartheid which really started uh formally legally in the year 1910 december 19 1910 baltimore mayor john barry Mahool passed the first residential racial zoning law in american history and from there. The next mayor, James H. Preston, goes on to pass three more ordinances before that struck down by the Supreme Court in Buchanan versus Warley in 1917. After that, you had uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which later becomes the Federal Housing Administration. The federal government, they create these maps, residential security maps, which red line, green line, blue line, and yellow line over 200 cities across America, including Baltimore. Um, and the Baltimore City Planning Department helps the federal government do that. Uh, in 1937, in the same year, you had uh, federally subsidized public housing begin and public housing was segregated in two ways. It was segregated by units or by community. So you had white public housing developments and black public housing developments. And then you also had the other form of segregation where public housing communities were placed in black neighborhoods. You don't see public housing in Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, Mount Washington, Lorville. You don't see public housing there because it was placed in black neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and also along the waterfront, which was heavily polluted, heavily industrialized at the time. Nobody wanted to live near the water back in the 30s and 40s. In the 1900s. So you have like the way by which you have multiple systems, multiple levels of government, multiple practices that really collude and come together to create these practices that I refer to as Baltimore apartheid.
0: Now, when you look at a map, and I know this is kind of how you came up with the idea that coming through the center of Baltimore is what you call the white L. And what's interesting is that along that center is where you find the private schools. It cuts right down Charles Street, down to Fells Point. Can you talk about what that white L signifies and also the neighborhoods that are scattered around that and what it means to be either close to the white L or farther away from it?
1: Sure. Well, as I talk about my book, the white L and the black butterfly are both racial geographies when you look at a map. And I looked at a racial dot map by Dustin Cable at the University of Virginia at the time and where one dot represented one person. And you can see clearly on the map how uh, there's a white L in Baltimore and it it really kind of includes Mount Washington as well. Um, and then you you swing over to Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, and then you come down the center of the city, like you said, Charles Street, St. Paul Street, and you take those down south through the spine of the city to the Inner Harbor, and then you take Alice Anna, and you can bank east and go all the way to Dundalk, and south of there, the Inner Harbor, Canton, those areas are really what's included in the White L. So it's a demographic description, but it's also a way that I talk about the way capital operates. In the white L, capital clusters, capital is centralized. But in the Black butterfly, capital is deprived unless there's development that's intent on displacement, so gentrification. But it's also so these racialized or racial geographies are not just demographic descriptions. I want people to be clear. I'm also talking about, and I'm looking at this dude, Isaiah, with a bear head on his thing, he's making me laugh.
0: I will say, Isaiah, he's a, he's a, um, uh,
1: he's a
2: teacher
0: I'm going to get back School. on topic.
1: I just had to point that. out. <laughs> um, so yes, these are, these are descriptions of where capital, how capital operates as well. And we know in America, capital is attracted to whiteness, and capital is denied in Black spaces.
0: So with that, uh, and then breaking down into that, can, can you talk a little bit about income levels? Because we know this white L for people to really understand it, you'll take a look at income, take a look at you know, city services, take a look at education and take a look at even life expectancy. So in those four areas, break it down for people what it means to live a privileged life in the white L. And if you're in the black butterfly very far away from it, your life expectancy and everything gets impacted.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when capital concentrates in the white l, that means opportunities and resources are also concentrated in the white l. So if you have access to transit, to better housing, to better city services, to bank lending for both small homes and for small businesses, opportunity abounds, and therefore health outcomes and other life indicators like life expectancy are gonna be much further ahead than those places in Baltimore where capital is deprived and where therefore you don't have resources, you don't have opportunity. And one thing that people should really understand, uh, I think these days racial segregation is described in very benign neutral terms, but it's very pernicious. And it's not that black people can't be successful without living next to white people, that's not it. Black neighborhoods can thrive. Tulsa, Greenwood community is a prime example of that. And there were others, Sweet Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, Springfield, Illinois. The problem is many of those were destroyed by white supremacist violence. But I think that in Baltimore, I think the key to understand is that what happens is in the white L, like I said earlier, there's a hyper accumulation of resources. In the black butterfly, there's the hyper deprivation of resources, and it's that what, it's that sort of reality that then creates another reality that's related to racial segregation, and that is the fight over resources. When you live in a hyper deprived environment, deprived of resources, now people end up fighting over the crumbs that are there, and that's why you end up with crime and violence, particularly when you have the drug trade involved, people are fighting over turf to sell whatever product they're selling. And it's because there are few resources. So they're trying to sell something to bring in some sort of economic, uh, you know, resource to the community. And when you're trying to fight over turf that involves that brings about violence, which then brings about the homicide rate that's so high in the black butterfly. So I think that's the thing that I want people to understand. Racial segregation is not some benign of reality. It actually structures economic opportunity according to your racial geography. And when it shapes opportunity, it then goes on to impact other things around how people end up operating in order to survive.
0: You had mentioned before that life expectancy, and the way it's set up, life expectancy is supported and goes up in the white L. And at the same time, it decreases in the black butterfly. Can you talk a bit about that and how we can even situate it by looking at say, you know, Freddie Gray's neighborhood versus say, you know, what Roland Park, a five mile difference actually.
1: Well, what I came to realize even toward the end of my book when I was writing it and editing it, what I came to realize is that racial segregation, in fact, one of the intentions behind it was for white people and white communities to obtain better health. Like that wasn't just like an accidental side effect, it's actually part of the intent and purpose. And the reason why I know that is because my field, public health was used as a rationale, as a reason for racial segregation. So you have at that time in the early 1900s, other infectious diseases, we're going through a pandemic now, but back then it was tuberculosis, yellow fever, cholera, those sorts of infectious diseases that were rampant and on the loose. And they had a lot to do with how sanitary an environment was. And you're talking about a time in Baltimore, particularly in Baltimore. In fact, we should mention that where Loyola is located on Cold Springs, off of Cold Springs Lane, that was the northernmost boundary of Baltimore until 1918. So Baltimore was a much smaller city uh, 100 or so years ago. So when you go into the heart of the city, just outside of downtown, where you have a lot of row homes along the waterfront, can a lot of those row homes as well. Think about the density of those spaces. And we used to have row. We used to have wooden shacks in the alleys. Hmm. So people were living black people, especially were living in these Well, lower income black people, it was also middle class black folks. But folks who were lower income were living in these in these alleys. They did not have a sewer system yet in the alleys. They were living in wooden shacks that didn't have plumbing, which means they didn't have great access to clean water, water filtration, which is coming online. So this basic infrastructure was just, was, was actually, they were working on it at the time, Mayor Preston, they were putting a lot of these new systems in place but many black households in those alleys and those wooden shacks didn't have it. So therefore, uh, if you don't have a sewer system, if you don't have plumbing, that means you don't have toiletry, which means the human waste, that sort of thing is gonna create unsanitary conditions whereby which those infectious diseases will spread more heavily. So it's really the conditions in which people live, not the people, the conditions, of course. So public health then was being used and saying, hey, we don't want blackness, which was being linked with disease. We don't want those people coming near us because we want to protect our health. Mm-hmm. And so white communities then were created. You had the institution of green apartheid, more trees, more flowers, go to Roland Park. It's a cornucopia of, of beautiful, lush foliage. and. Just, I mean, I almost think I'm in Harry Potter land sometimes when I go to that part of town. But if you go to a sand town or a Green Mount East, in, or even South Baltimore in some locations, you look as asphalt, concrete, a lot of hard impermeable surfaces prone to urban flooding or will create urban flooding. Also will create the lack of greenage or foliage, this also creates the urban heat island effect. So you can have that five mile difference. 10 degrees hotter in the summertime. Um, So this, it created a a situation where white communities were garnering more health. Think about food security, better grocery stores, access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So now you're talking about food security, you're talking about nutrition quality. These are things that impact health. Green space, food security, and they impact health outcomes. So that you drive, make that link from segregation to health by thinking about how public health was invoked as a reason for racial segregation, and then about how white communities were able to garner and concentrate resources like green space, food security, transit, all the things, what we call in our field, social determinants of health that allow white, th- white communities to thrive and black communities are struggling to survive.
0: Now, there are certain communities in Baltimore City where they use a the term that they're dead men walking. They just don't know it yet. And they're not talking about homicide. They're talking about environmental racism. You know, the lead poisoning, what they're taking in in terms of the natural air. Can you talk about the impact of environmental racism and how it impacts the communities w- within this black butterfly?
1: Sure. And you're really just getting at yet another function of racial segregation. Zoning is a way of keeping out those negative externalities, negative facilities. So you don't see pollution facilities in a Mount Washington or a Roland Park or a Lauraville. You don't see uh, the type of uh, way that industry is located in, of course, in and near a downtown area, but the historic area in the industry around the waterfront. Mm-hmm. So, again, people did not want to live near the water in the 30s and 40s. People do now, but not then. It was polluted. It was a hot mess. It smelled all the time. If you had money, you didn't want to live there, which also explains why a lot of public housing was placed along the waterfront. It was undesirable property, undesirable space in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s. So, I think what we're saying is that environmental um injustice is another function or you can see it manifested through racial segregation you can see how pollution is and the polluting facilities are allowed via zoning toxic waste sites incinerator down in south baltimore they're allowed in places that are undesirable where wealthy people did not want to live but uh You know, you don't have them in wealthier communities. And zoning is a part of that. Now, with toxic lead, it's just such a devastating, you know, has such a devastating impact on the human brain. And what we know from research is that it impacts people's cognitive capacity, uh, so their ability to cogitate. So if you care about academic outcomes, if you care about education, there you go. Uh, But it also has a tremendous behavioral impact is connected with aggressivity, impulsivity, it impacts people's ability to regulate their emotions. So somebody steps on your shoe, pop, hey man, why are you hitting me? Impulse, there is no regulating and saying, wait a minute, let me process that, just boom, instinct. And so that, you know, the higher the lead poisoning, the more that impacts human behavior. And so it also is implicated, you know, in in crime and violence. And so when people talk about the school to prison pipeline, I say we really should say it's the toxic lead exposure to school to prison pipeline, because it starts when babies like Freddie Gray and his twin sister are poisoned in utero. Right. Then you have babies and infants and toddlers. They're poisoned because they're pulling the paint chips maybe off the wall or they're crawling on the floor where there's lead dust. Are there in a community where demolition is happening, kicking lead dust in the air, they're inhaling this heavy metal which does not belong in the human body at all. And so in Baltimore, being a heavily industrial city, it's in the lead paint, in the walls, it's in the soil, it's in the water, which is why they give bottled water out at schools when we were meeting in schools, because lead is in the pipes in your school system and then lead is in the air especially down in south baltimore where that industry is so lead is pervasive especially along the waterfront and in the black butterfly and that's something we're gonna have to deal with as a part of the legacy of jim and jane crow
0: now when we get to the center and thank you for using the jim and jane crow Oh, I remember when you coined
1: Yes, person.
0: we were having the conversation talking about the impact of Jim Crow. And I'm like, how about the benefits of Jane Crow as well? I, I want you to take a look at the things you just laid down around environmental racism, environmental injustice, and then bring that to a center point in, in the midst of this global pandemic, where we're talking about sending children back into schools where there is no fresh, clean water. And there's a mandate, it should be a mandate, a dictate to wash your hands on a regular basis to cut down on exposure, but how do you wash your hands in water that has lead in it and expect to be able to stave off any kind of problems coming with the global pandemic or with lead pet poisoning?
1: Well, you know, and I saw this point uh, lifted up by Dr. Kamika Royal. She talked about, you know, first of all, how can you wash your hands if the water isn't running in the bathroom in many of our public schools and it's like you know and it is a mandate this is already something that the cdc is saying or has said since almost the beginning of the pandemic washing your hands is very important and so i think about when i think about the reopening debate and i think about you know the the notion that people are talking about equity and i say to myself well which equity are you referring to because most most I think that mostly I think they're referring to equity in test scores as a form of, of saying like this is the this is what equity is all about. And that's not what equity is all about. <laughs> I mean, those are test scores and we should talk about how these tests are constructed and don't really reflect a lot of, of people's uh, cultural reality. So is that really what equity is about? Or how about health, people being alive, people stopping the pandemic? And so then that's when I think about the facilities. Where is the equity in the facilities that children are going to go back into? If you're going back to a school that has running hot water, that has, you know, good ventilation, good heat and AC. And we know a lot of our schools don't have heat and AC. So that makes me wonder, how could they have good ventilation? (laughs) So, you know, if you're going into a school that has those things, well, great. Maybe you can reopen. But if you're going to a school that doesn't have running water, has lead in the water that does run, and doesn't have AC and heat, which then means you probably don't have good ventilation, how on earth are those children supposed to go into that building and we call that some type of equitable reopening and that's what I question from a public health standpoint.
0: Now, I want to give a special welcome. We have some uh, seventh graders who have joined us. Um, Their teachers brought them on. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Brown, because we have heard the term um, white supremacy. It comes out a lot. I know even our mayor is talking about white supremacy, and there's a sense that people don't understand what that means. Can you just step back? And really describe and help people to understand white supremacy. And then I want to get into the laws that were passed and why Baltimore led the way when it comes to redlining, putting it in the books.
1: Sure. Well, you know, in my book, I believe I would say that, you know, white supremacy is the belief, the ideology and sometimes even the theology that says that white people are superior and it is then encoded. This this thinking, this ideology is encoded. It's embedded in policies, practices, systems, and budgets. So you know it has a material, substantial impact. Now, there's a, a architect uh, that I recently met, and he said is perhaps it's really not white supremacy. Perhaps it's white inferiority. It's a white inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. It's the fear of black success. And again, so when I mentioned earlier, the destruction of Black Wall Street, Black Rosewood in Florida, Black Springfield in Illinois, that these thriving Black spaces, Black farmers who were organizing a union in Elaine, Arkansas in 1910, before they were, there was a mass lynching and killing of them, that it was a fear of Black people being successful. Not black pathology, but whenever black people are successful and thriving, that's when the white inferiority complex kicks into gear. And I think that's something that white America has to work on, just like men have to work on uh, having an an inferiority complex when women are successful or heteronormative folks being threatened by LGBTQ community we have to figure out a way where we can get around zero-sum thinking. And so I think that's the thing. Black people succeeding does not mean somehow white people are no longer successful. We, if, if one group wins, we all win if we all consider ourselves Americans. So I think that's what I mean when I talk about white supremacy. Um, it's the erroneous belief, ideology, and theology that positions white people above all others And then resources, opportunity, and capital, like I described earlier, follow or don't follow people depending on where they fall in the hierarchy of racial categories.
0: So now let's go back a little bit because I know Baltimore leads the way when it comes to setting up laws to bar black folks from buying houses to be able to get houses in certain communities. I mean, it started here first. So can you lay that down and help people to understand that, even in light of the Fair Housing Act that came out in 68 and how it didn't really reverse what had been put in place?
1: Right. So you're referring to how Baltimore is ground zero for urban American apartheid. Yes. So this is why I, if all the students, and that includes everybody with a PhD, I say, like I used to say to my students at Morgan, that's why these dates are important. So Baltimore passed the first residential racial zoning law, December 19, 1910. The mayor was John Barry Mahool. The next mayor, James Preston, he had all kinds of schemes, including public health. But also you have the Roland Park Company that by 1912, the general manager, Edward Boughton, he had pioneered community wide racially restrictive covenants which impacted the four neighborhoods that the Roland Park Company would develop. Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, and then later the Northwood community. So these racially restrictive covenants are like the deed to your house. So it's like when you get your house, when you buy your house and you're the homeowner, it's like, congratulations, you're a new homeowner. You gotta keep your yard cut, keep your shrubs trimmed, keep your driveway clear. And oh, by the way, when you sell your home, you cannot sell, to any Negroes, which is what black people were called at the time. So that was a racially restrictive covenant and it was in the deed to the House. Now, they were later rendered unenforceable by a Supreme Court decision called Shelley versus Kramer in 1948. But in fact, the language is still there as a woman. in, uh, I believe Rogers Forge found out in Towson just a couple of years ago. The Baltimore Sun reported on it. So you have you know residential racial zoning racially restricted covenant segregated public housing swimming pools were segregated parks and recreation centers were segregated hospitals were segregated the church oh my goodness the church don't let me get started the church these some of these raggedy and racist churches were also oh. segregated the, the water fountains dr k they don't understand the water fountain where you could get a sip a drink of water that those were Right. So this was a a sin sick field, segregated society of Jim and Jane Crow in Baltimore. Baltimore City was ground zero for it. And that's what we're talking about. 110 years later, still wrestling with this craziness, this mess. We're in a mess of Jim and Jane Crow Baltimore apartheid.
0: Now, I, I want you with that, because, I mean, I, I love that you brought about the church and what Dr. King said 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings, right, is the most segregated time here in this country. Baltimore
1: City. If you I, think well, Hold on, I think I left out somebody. The universities were saying <laughs> I got I can't leave out the university because that's we we in a university setting. So let's not leave. I, I, I tried to pass
0: over that part. Yes. Like K through 12, K definitely. through
1: 12, and higher ed. So I, I don't want to leave them out. Sorry about I'm that.
0: I'm so yeah. glad you did. That 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 does make a difference. So then it all impacts and it all comes together here. But but if you could, if you can kind of pull out for us and help us to understand that black leadership is not enough. So some people say if we just get black people in positions of leadership, everything will change. We've had black mayors in Baltimore City. We've had you know, black police commissioners. We've had black school, uh, city school superintendents. We've had black commissioners. We've had that. And yet this apartheid that you're talking about this two or three Baltimore's that we talk about still exists. So can, can you kind of break that down a little bit? It's more than just having black folks in positions of power.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the problem that arises that we live in a capitalist society. So dollar, dollar bill, cash rules, everything around me. So and I think that's the issue, because whether you talk about campaign financing, you have corporate developers and corporate donors that when they give money, they expect they expect that politician to do something for them with that money that they gave, especially at the levels that you have these corporate donors give. It's one thing when you have a small donor giving like $50 or $100, but when you're giving 8000 9000 or I think 6000 is the limit in Maryland, but collectively you see these interests bundling their donations, they expect something for their money. So even though you have Black political leadership, as you mentioned, in Baltimore, and since 1978, I believe, 77 is when the first black mayor in Baltimore was elected, Kurt Schmoke. I think he took office the next year in 78. Um, But when you have, or was it the 80s, actually, because Baltimore was one of the latest cities to have big cities to have a black mayor. So he may have become mayor in the 80s, actually. Um, So when you, but when you have campaign financing set up a situation where most of the the donations for the winner come from these corporate white owned development, white owned businesses, then that's their interests as black mayors often compromise because now you have to do something for the people that help put you in office. And so I think that's part of the dynamic the other dynamic is straight up corruption, which unfortunately we've seen lately as well. So I think you know when you have when you live in a capitalist society, dollar the cash rules, everything around me. I won't break it down for the seventh graders. If I gave y'all money, y'all would listen to me a lot closer. Whoever gives you money, you go, like, yeah, let me listen to what they got to say. Cause they helped, they gave, they put something in my pocket. Well, same thing with grown people, same thing with folks in office. And I think that's the dynamic. You have to determine who it is and what you is, what, what are you, what you is. You have to determine what it is and who you are going to actually represent. Even if you get some of that money from some of those entities, who do I represent? Do I represent the corporate interests or do I represent the power needs, the actual and addressing the disparities that exist in my city and make sure that I do more for the communities that have less, like in the Black Butterfly?
0: And Kirk schmidt just so people uh, will know, was the first African-American mayor here in Baltimore City, 1987 to 1999. So we were very late in terms of Uh, a Black person in power. Now, I want to ask you, there was a study that came out that said that a Black boy, they use the terminology Black boy, a Black boy born into Baltimore has a 0% chance of working their way up in terms of income class, in terms of education, and ultimately working themselves out of Baltimore. I wanna put out of Baltimore on a side for a second, cause I wanna talk about what does that mean to work yourself out of Baltimore? And then just for a minute, take a look at what that means and help us to understand why that percentage, and we're talking about an African-American young man born into an economically challenged community in the black uh, butterfly. Cause if you're, if you're black and you're born in Roland Park, I don't think it pertains to you at all.
1: Right the vast majority of black boys in Baltimore are going to be born in red line communities in the black butterfly, like Freddie Gray. And so you're going to have uh, in these communities, that study comes from Raj Chetty, who I believe is at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And it referred, the reason why they said it was a 0% chance because there was actually the studies about income mobility. And what they showed was that a black boy born in Baltimore would have downward mobility. That's why there isn't a zero percent chance of going up because the study showed that if you lived in Baltimore, you would end up. If you're born in Baltimore as a black male, you would end up making less than your parents. So downward income mobility. Most generations of Americans they advance. If their parents earn thirty thousand, then a year, you know, they'll end up at thirty five thousand a year. Or if they start at a hundred thousand, they'll, you know, end up with one twenty. But in Baltimore, if your parents are making thirty thousand and you're black male born into the city, you may end up at twenty five thousand. So that downward economic mobility and in fact, other studies, Baltimore was ranked one hundred out of the one hundred cities that they looked at. So it was at the bottom. But if you look at in that bottom ten, you saw other hyper segregated cities like Wayne County, which includes Detroit. I believe you saw Chicago or Cook County, which includes Chicago. Uh, Milwaukee County, which includes Milwaukee. So hypersegregated cities, it's living in a hypersegregated environment that ultimately they didn't mention it, but I looked at it and I said, look at all these hypersegregated cities that are in the mix. And so that's the thing that, again, you go back to the real damage of racial segregation, which a scholar named Ray Rooks, who wrote a book called Cutting School, she calls it segronomics. So segronomics is the real damage of racial segregation. And segronomics, again, results in the hyper accumulation of resources in the White l, the hyper deprivation of resources in the Black butterfly. And therefore, that's how you get to that downward mobility, because where are the resources? If you don't have bank lending, you don't have loans going to small businesses, creating jobs, allowing people to rise out of poverty, so it's that dy- very dynamic, segronomics, that is explaining the dynamic that that study uh, lifts up.
3: I'm so
0: glad you said that, because so often when we talk about having two Baltimores, and some would say three Baltimores, that people take it along the racial lines. Oh, there's a white Baltimore and a black Baltimore, but segronomics is really saying, look, that there is a, a black and a white economically advantaged Baltimore and a black and a white economically challenged Baltimore, more black than white in both of these instances, but that black folks who live in within this white L community, whatever it stretches from, children born in that neighborhood don't have a downward slope. They have an upward slope because they tend to go to different schools. They tend to have more opportunities from the womb that sets them ahead. I and mean, we're talking about being born behind and it starts not when you're born, but when you're in your mother's womb, like that's what we're trying to fight against. So in the in the second half of your book, you get into some solutions. And I want to start going through those solutions. And I want to invite everyone who's listening. Thank you so much for joining us. This is kind of a two-part. The colloquium is very different from any other talks that you've been to because we try to set up an environment where you can listen to Dr. Brown, our expert at the table. But then we open up breakout rooms, which we'll do at 1 o'clock. You'll have breakout rooms to talk about solutions, what you can do in your own community. And then we meet back here at about twenty-ish or so. And then Dr. Brown will give us marching orders, things that we can do immediately, so we end by one thirty. So please stick around for the breakout rooms, because both Dr. Brown and I, I'm going to speak for you too, we believe that the work doesn't come from listening to an expert. It comes from taking ownership of the material and saying, what can I do to make a difference immediately?
1: So so back to Before you. Before you go on, Dr. K, can yes. I show folks really quick, this yes, is the, did the map show up? Mm-hmm. So this is the map that I'm talking Excellent. about, the, the racial dot map. So white, blue represents white, green represents black, red represents Asian, orange represents Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and then brown is other race, Native American. So this is, this is the racial geography I was talking about. As you see, the white L, the, where white people are concentrated in Baltimore, this green... Represents black. And so I said, wow, this is the looks like a butterfly, called it the black butterfly, the Asian archipelago and the Latina Latina lagoon around Patterson Park. And we actually have a small Lumbee Indian Lumbee tribe community in Upper Fells Point. So this speaks to, I think, the fullness of the racial geography. Can you pull
0: that back up, Dr. Brown?
1: In Baltimore Um, City.
0: Can you pull that back up for the question that I have? Sure. Uh, so I want people to see this, that, that if you look at this, the black butterfly, which is the green, can you talk for a second without removing the map that the closer you live to the white L, the more you kind of benefit from the spill off? Is that So if I live in whatever community that is that's right up against the white L, then mm-hmm. my services are better than someone who lives farther out
1: well it's a it's, it's a little bit more nuanced i think you know particularly because like you look here in northeast baltimore there that's actually a, a more integrated mm-hmm. section of the city so like a butterfly has like different patterns on the wing you know this isn't like a it isn't a strict you know black like nobody lives in the black nobody besides black people lives in black butterfly communities you know we do see uh, you know mixtures of folks you know, like here in this sort of downtown Charles Street, uh, forget the name, Charles Village, maybe uh, mm-hmm. downtownish, uh, Bolton Hill a little bit, but not uh, with a lot of African Americans. But I mean, you can see some, you know, right here, in Southwest Baltimore. So there are these like mixtures or places that are more integrated than others. It's just that statistically speaking, uh, Baltimore is among the top eight category five hyper segregated cities in America. So I'm not so sure that if you live close to the YL that you're gonna necessarily receive better services. Uh, In fact, like here in this sort of bubble right here, North Avenue, and then uh, I think that's maybe Fulton and come over here, it's probably Broadway. You know, you can be here in the black butterfly and actually be subject I think, to this wave of gentrification right. uh, that is underway, particularly because you have our major universities, University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins on the east side that are expanding campuses and using what I call gentrification grants, mm-hmm. a.k.a. live near your work right. to bring in an influx of their workers. And there is no stay where you are about your, to counteract that, which is one of the solutions that I mentioned in my book. So. Uh, It could be that in some places that you live closer to the white L, you receive more services. But I think it also could be true that if you're in close proximity to a place that's gentrifying, then you're gonna be, I think, uh, receiving or on the bottom end of a negative process that may be on the way.
0: All right, so let's talk solutions. I wanna break it down into categories. Um, We're hyper-segregated, we check all the boxes when you talk about what Baltimore apartheid is, uh, it started here first and it has continued the hyper segregation. We know life expectancy rises by almost 20 years with a five mil, five-mile difference between Freddie Gray's neighborhood and Roland Park. So you talk about setting up n- not in terms of in terms of money, like let's break it down to the money of what it would take to transform Baltimore and, and let's start with neighborhoods.
1: Well. I have a couple of things that I really lift up as it relates to like monetarily addressing the dynamics that I've addressed earlier, segronomics mm-hmm. being chief among them. Um, you know, so one solution I'll talk about is Baltimore or black neighborhoods reparations. Mm-hmm. And so that really gets to the point that neighborhoods were stigmatized, demonized, denied capital in Baltimore. Therefore the repair has to be bringing resources, capital, public dollars, to black butterfly communities to help make black neighborhoods matter. And and this actually goes to a point that I think has to be lifted up because a lot of people, even a lot of white folks are actually now chanting and agreeing that black lives matter, black lives matter. And that's great, I'm glad, but you cannot make black lives matter if you don't make black neighborhoods matter because that is where most black people live. So this is what we're talking about, making Black Lives Matter in the fullness of our existence, not just when police are involved in killing us. And I think that's what this is all about. So Baltimore Neighborhood Reparations is taking 10% of the city budget, allocating it to the top 15 or 20 red line Black neighborhoods, and then having democratically elected 15 member neighborhood councils that's diverse along lines of sexual orientation, gender, uh, age, so that you have a representation of people living in community, and they, along with the broader community, help decide here's how we're gonna spend our allocation of those dollars every year. And you gotta do that for 40 or 50 years, because again, we're we've been in the mess for 110 years. So we're not gonna get out of this overnight. You gotta have this long-term vision of repair for black butterfly neighborhoods.
2: Dr. Doctor K and Dr. Brown, I am so sorry uh, to interrupt, but I'm sitting here with my seventh graders and uh, they're at Gilman and they have one question, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. The question is what stopped or why didn't um, uh, black people who were forced to live on waterfront properties in the past Mm-hmm. Why have they not been able to cash in on that now that it's more desirable and property hmm. values have gone up? Uh, now, so is, that, is-, is that right? Is that right?
0: <laughs> is that okay, right? All right. Thank you, seventh graders. Uh, so, Dr. Brown, so the seventh graders I have you on the spot. Why aren't they able to cash in on it? Why, why weren't they able to benefit when all of the money started pouring into the waterfront communities?
1: Well, first of all, let me say hello to all the seventh graders. And that is a PhD level question. Whoever asked that, and if it came from the entire class, y'all are moving in the right direction. So why weren't they able to cash in on it? Well, first of all, many of them were displaced by the development in and around the waterfront. So you had a process called urban renewal, which in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, really starting with a process are policies called the Housing Act of 1949, which gave cities, the federal government paid about 75 cents on every dollar for cities to revitalize their urban, their downtown, especially corridors, which are often blighted at the time. And so federal government is giving a lot of money, cities pitch in and they up this urban renewal results in what a writer named James Baldwin also calls Negro removal. So you had in Baltimore, in downtown corridor and along the waterfront, Urban Renewal uprooted many Native African Americans who lived in that community and pushed them out. So with them gone, then you saw the investment along the waterfront beginning, let's say, uh, William Donald Schaefer, when he was the mayor of Baltimore before Kurt Schmoke, he was the big booster of downtown and the waterfront harbor place. All of those tourist areas that are down in, in uh, the, along the waterfront in the inner harbor, a lot of those came or were really started during his mayoralty. So William Donald Schaefer played a large role in effectuating urban renewal. You have the Greater Baltimore Committee, and they were both you know, looking to pass and push urban renewal so they could revitalize Baltimore's downtown, but doing so moved a lot of the African Americans out of those areas. Then they invested in those communities. With the investment, you saw the white influx into those communities. And so then they became desirable places to live, but with a new population. And that's the problem with gentrification, which by the way, is just a remix of another policy called colonization. So that's what we're dealing with is America's long history of uprooting people. Just like when the European settlers came to America, they uprooted our Native American brothers and sisters, said, you got to go, you got to get up off your own land and just jacked it, just snatched up their property. Now, some of it, we know the Native Americans were being exposed to new diseases like influenza. So you had mass death influenza. But another disease, so we look at how diseases then, diseases during uh, the early 1900s, and then the pandemic we're in now, we see how health is implicated and involved in all of these processes. So colonization meant greater burden of death with the new diseases from influenza. And the things that African-Americans have experienced, Baltimore apartheid placed African-Americans more at risk for new viruses like the novel coronavirus. So that's really the explanation, is that Black people were pushed out. That's why they couldn't benefit. They no longer live there.
0: Thank you so much to our seventh graders from in Denmark. large numbers
1: in large numbers there are some uh, of course but yeah, there's large... some
0: still there which we appreciate uh-huh. let me ask you this um dr Brown because we, we've been in this situation for 110 years so you're talking that's about maybe five generations at least that have been impacted in this situation you go back 110 years you're talking about the 1918 flu pandemic like you're talking about the long-term impact of that as people were coming through and figuring it out right so so with that in mind, you're saying we need to implement this package, this billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar package for 40 to 50 years. So you're you're looking at not my son's benefiting, not their children benefiting, but the children of my children's children being able to benefit from these changes. That's a long time out before we see substantial change? Can can you talk about why it's going to take so long other than the fact that we've just been here for so long?
1: Right, and that's a great question because I wanna be sure that I have others to state that I have other solutions in the book. And that's like you say, a very intergenerational long-term solution. But one of the solutions I have that's more immediate is a $3 billion racial equity social impact bond. Mm -hmm. And half of that 1.5 billion It's getting toxic lead that we discussed earlier out of the communities. We need to get it out of the homes and the lead paint. We need to get it out of the soil, remediate the soil. We need to get it out of the water in our schools, in the pipes. And we need to get it out of the air down in South Baltimore. Um, And then the other half is housing for those experiencing homelessness. It's substance abuse treatment, it's mental health treatment, it's transit like a black butterfly freeze, butterfly circulator that runs east west to complement the north south uh, circulator that we have right now, the Charm City circulator. Um, You know, expanding safe streets, our violence prevention initiative from 10 sites to 40 or 50 sites. Uh, We need as much violence prevention as we can get instead of policing, which comes in on the back end after the violence has already been committed. So we want more prevention, more treatment, more housing, get the lead out of the environment. And that's much more immediate. That's what we can do in the next five years. So we're not just waiting until, you know, over yonder when, when the other longer term impacts come into place. Uh, so I just want to mention that in terms of, you know, there's hopefully a range of solutions that help address, you know, the, the situation that we're dealing with. And I think I didn't answer the second part of that question. So please. No,
0: but, but, but you did you did lay it out because that, mm-hmm. that was what we're trying to figure out. I want people to understand that we're not talking about waiting 40 to 50 years before we see change. Right. There are some short term solutions, which is what something that you know Senator Carter's been talking about. Get mm-hmm. the lead out of the homes, out of the soil, out of the pipes so that we can stop that pipeline of the toxic waste, you said, into the schools into the prison. So I want to ask you now in the last couple of minutes before we go into our breakout rooms.
1: Just want to show you that, okay. this is what that looks like.
0: Oh, excellent. You want to take us through it then before we, we go to break? Yes,
1: yeah, just quickly, again, like half of it is getting rid of uh, toxic lead, training folks to do the work, and paying for home remediation, soil, I mean, home abatement, soil remediation, cutting off lead poisoning down in South Baltimore, and replacing pipes. We, we need to do this. And then this is the other half that I mentioned housing for folks who are homeless, community uh, redevelopment, expanding safe streets. So here's the housing for folks without homes, more community redevelopment, expanding safe streets, boosting or getting rid of transit, biking, food, apartheid, more substance abuse, social work, counseling. So this is what that three billion dollar racial equity social impact bond entails.
0: All right. So then. Um, to let folks know. We're getting ready to go into our breakout rooms, but I want to ask you one more question, Dr. Brown, that I'm going to invite everyone uh, to come on before we break out. So someone had put down, uh, Dr. Jean Lee Cole said, what if Johns Hopkins was leaned on to dedicate funding for reparations? Um, I know that you've been in touch with Mayor Scott about this plan. Is anyone listening? Are we actually going to see what you're talking about, at least in the short term, get implemented under this new uh, government? Are they looking at saying, okay, we can take $3 billion out and do this?
1: Right, well, keep in mind the city's budget for the year pre-COVID was, is around $3 billion. So this is a, a, the annual budget. So the city wouldn't have this money. What I'm leaning on or looking for with that plan is philanthropy, especially, are other wealthy people donating fully to this fund to mm-hmm. have, help actually get some of this stuff done. And so I think that's the thing that I'm, and if, you know, I don't believe they should be looking for be, to be repaid, but even <laughs> if so, when you get rid of a lot of these issues, that's more money that could be used down the line to help repay uh, folks who put into the bond. So uh, that's really the thinking that I have just in terms of, and are they listening? Well, the book came out uh, less than a month ago. I, I expect it's gonna take time for people to read it, to digest it, and so you know, I think in the next six months or so, I'm hoping to see our elected officials wrestling with, debating, proposing a lot of solutions along the lines of what I propose in the book.
0: And if These solutions are not proposed. So say once again, just like after we had uh, the Freddie Gray uprising, solutions were were offered on the table, money was poured into Baltimore city and didn't go where it should have gone. And so we didn't move the needle. We moved the needle in terms of more organizations were created, more young people were actively involved. Like in that sense, when I think about the work that Erica Bridgeford did with Baltimore Ceasefire and Zeke Cohen's work around trauma-enforced care, we've moved the needle in those ways. If we don't implement what you're talking about, what do you think is going to happen in Baltimore City?
1: Well, I think the reason why we have the, we're saying that the needle wasn't moved in a large way was because those elected officials didn't go to the root of the problem. Again, the root of the problem is Baltimore apartheid. Mm -hmm. It's hyper segregation. So the solution has to be desegregation. It has to be Integration and not just black people and white people moving next to each other, but desegregating resources on a large level. If five billion dollars worth of damage was done, don't come at me with a five hundred thousand dollar solution. If we got a five billion dollar problem, we need a five billion dollar solution. And that's what we haven't seen. We've seen crumbs dish out and not a wholesale dismantling of Baltimore apartheid, which means undoing segregationism. The good news is that all that was done was intentional, which means that so can the undoing of Baltimore and the dismantling of Baltimore apartheid also be done. It can be done intentionally because setting it up and maintaining it has been intentional as well.
0: Dr. Lawrence Brown, thank you so much for laying that down for us and in setting the stage for our breakout groups. I'd like to invite everyone to now come onto the screen. Event uh, Services, if you can unlock everyone, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. So I know that Dr. Brown has given us a lot to think about. Before we go into the breakout rooms, I wanted to open up for two or three questions to Dr. Brown while they're setting the breakout rooms up. I wanna also give a special welcome to all of my students who are here. Thank you so much for showing up. Um, you get credit, but still, I'm happy to have you. Uh, any questions from the audience, just show or raise a hand. Um, we'll just call on you and we'd love to get your comments. So while people are thinking of their question, I'm going to go to the questions in the box. Um, So does anyone have any idea, and this is from Dr. Jean Lee Cole, of how much money came into Baltimore City after uh, the uprising with Freddie Gray? It it feels like at least millions of dollars were promised. Uh, You have any idea about that and what that turned out to be, Dr. Brown, and then we'll go to Arika Fletcher.
1: Well, the problem, let's take Governor Hogan's Project Core, which I believe is creating opportunities for renewal and enterprises or something along those lines. So that was like a $700 million plan uh, that he created after uh, the killing of Freddie Gray. Um, The problem is when you break down that $700 million, uh, I believe $600 million was for investors who would come into the communities uh, that didn't live in the neighborhoods. And then I think 100 million or so was maybe uh, demolishing vacants and helping to, you know, lead to uh, new developers coming in to help revitalize some of those urban spaces. So again, you know, $700 million on paper, but 600 million was going to go to people, developers that didn't even live in the community. (laughs) You know, so I think that's the thing we have to look at with some of these numbers. My plan that I talked about I'm saying, like Baltimore neighborhood reparations, it goes. Uh, Dr. To, Dr. Brown,
0: Dr. Brown, I yes. want to in. The, the seventh graders have to go. They just wanted you to know that they're leaving this. Oh. In their classroom. Thank you so much to the seventh grade boys from Gilman School. Thank you for joining our talk today. How nice is that? I'll, I'll go back to you, Dr. Brown, to finish up. We have Arika Fletcher, uh, Dr. Caulfield, and Mary Gunning in the queue for questions. To you after you finish this, we'll go to Ms. Fletcher first.
1: Yeah, so I just I want to compare Project Core to my plan, which is giving money directly to the community and letting them decide democratically how to use that money. So I think it's not always money. It's not always money. It's also who controls it and how the decisions are made. And I I like that a lot in my book.
0: I'll go to Rika Fletcher and after her will be Dr. Cossel. Hi, good afternoon. It's
3: Erica Fletcher. Okay. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. So uh, my questions for for you, Dr. Brown. Um, in your studies, have you found a link between um, um, when assessments go down, uh, the the tax assessments go down in a specific neighborhood, and um, and I guess gentrification or um, eminent domain? Have you have you found have you found that link yet? Or have 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 you have you, have you have you come across a study or 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 in your in your studies have have you found a link?
1: You're saying a link between lower tax assessments and gentrification? Yes. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Uh
3: and property n- values going down generally in well, specific neighborhoods.
1: Well, long-term, yes, because mm-hmm. that's what gentrification entails. It entails right. allowing a community to become blighted. The property values de- decline hence it becomes cheaper for outside folks and developers and people with capital to come in and buy it up. I mean, so it's, it's that's actually, I mean, you don't need us. I mean, there are studies that show it, but that's that's in fact, you know, a very common phenomenon uh, in the way that, and I do talk about that in my book as well. I believe, I wanna say in the track, which I, I call my chapters tracks, I believe in, it May be the one called Black Neighborhood Destruction. Okay, uh, I talking. got
3: the book, I just haven't
1: read it yet. Sure, uh, like I said, it's only been a month, <laughs> so I understand.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Thank you, I have Dr.
0: Caulfield who's standing by. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, hi, can you hear
2: me? You yes. can. Yeah, uh, the, looking at the map you showed, the uh, area along Blair Road, and uh, I guess along Harford Road up in uh, the Northeast part of the city, which uh, when I lived in Baltimore back in the 60s and 70s was pretty much all white, Mm -hmm. actually seemed to be uh, integrated. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were roughly equal numbers of, uh, you know, black and white or green and blue, whatever the dots Mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question is how do do those communities work are they uh, people getting along or the are the schools uh, of the caliber you would expect in the 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 pure white districts or or is and it raises a larger question is what's the ultimate goal is to have the whole city with that kind of density map of uh, the the two races
1: um my question I mean, thank you Sure. And I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't live there, so I don't uh, I, some folks who live there maybe can answer some of those questions a little bit better. What I do know is the Urban Institute, they did an analysis of um, lending and spending in Baltimore neighborhoods. What they found was uh, the more demographically black a community, the less resources, the less uh, lending, the less public spending, except with few exceptions, like maybe CDBG funds community development block grants, HUD funds, but by and large, uh, and they had three different categories. So they had like um, less than, I believe, less than half black, uh, 50 to 85% black, and then uh, 85% or more black. So starting at the bottom, those communities got more. So my suspicion then is that that's, like you say, a much more integrated community, it would be in the middle so that they're getting more Investment, more spending in th- that kind of community than a community that's 85 percent or more African American. Um, so my my guess is, and I thought somebody, I thought I saw somebody in the chat say something like the schools are good and that I sort of thing. Yeah. I think yes, they probably are. There's more spending than you will find in a Sandtown or a Greenmount East kind of community. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing better than those communities. But I'm also uh, willing to wager that they're probably not don't have the same level of investment as a Mount Washington or Roland Park or Guilford. So they're they're in the middle. They're in the middle. Now, I guess the other question was, uh, is that the kind of dispersal we should look for? I mean, I don't know. I think uh, Baltimore is a majority black city, 63 percent or so African-American. So mm-hmm. an, a proportionate allocation would be if you saw communities that were roughly two thirds black, roughly one third white, that would be proportionate. What we saw in Northeast Baltimore, like you said, is more of a 50 50 split, which is still not quite as it doesn't, that's not proportionate, it's close, but it's not exactly proportionate. So I don't know that every community needs to be half and half. I don't think that every, it can't be, not in the city that has, you know, 62% black population. I don't even know that every community needs to be proportionately Black, um, per se. I think the issue, like I say, is segregationomics and how we need to desegregate resources. Black people don't. Everybody Black can't move to a white neighborhood, (laughs) It leave two thirds of the city empty. And everybody Black don't want to live in a Black, in a white community either, because y'all know all the stories about wild Black, Starbucks wild Black, Barbecue Becky wild Black, you know, so you get all those situations where A lot of Black people aren't necessarily interested in going to be, you know, living in a community where they're going to have increased surveillance. They want, they like their community, they want to thrive in the community where they live. So how can we desegregate resources? And actually, when you do that, it becomes a community that's going to be attractive to everybody. So then folks will want to come. The only thing is we have to worry about is displacement after that. So I think you get to desegregation with a better allocation, a repair a reparative allocation of resources, you'll get to desegregation in any, by, you know, by any definition, you'll get there over time.
0: So then I wanna step in. Um, These are great questions. We wanna offer people an opportunity, which I find to be one of the best parts of the colloquium. So we can talk about the solutions. We'd like to ask you, how are the current educational policies assisting in achievement gaps in the black Uh, butterfly and post COVID? What can communities do to address these policies?
1: there's no such thing as an achievement gap. There's a resource gap, resource gap, that's the issue. And if you have the hyper deprivation of resources in black neighborhoods, that means you have schools that are poorly funded. And if you wanna get into education, we talk about an apartheid public school system that blocked black children from going to their schools from 1829 to 1960, I mean, to 1867 before they were then allowed, but then into a Jim and Jane Crow system until 1953 when Baltimore began to desegregate its school systems just a year before Brown versus Board of Education was handed down. Uh, And then after desegregation was effectuated, white flight ensued, or what I call in my book, white desegregation resistance and flight so you had because white parents did not want to send their children to school with black children so they fled baltimore to resist desegregation to place like baltimore county which and the tax dollars because maryland uses per pupil funding the tax dollars left with the white parents and went out to the suburbs with them leaving the majority black baltimore city public school system underfunded and black public schools even more underfunded than their white public school counterparts so the gap is the resource gap it's the deep underfunding of baltimore city public schools and you can layer on top of that the dynamic i talked about earlier with COVID. and you're talking about black public schools often don't have running water often don't have heat and ac often don't have the resources in those schools, so those children can thrive and I think that's so that that leads to any sort of achievement gap. But it's rooted in segronomics It's rooted in the resource gap and that's the discussion that has to be held if we're serious about making black students matter.
0: Dr. Brown, when I was speaking with Dr. Ibram Kendi for how to be anti-racist, he argued that the impact of COVID-19 will be similar to the impact of the triangle trade system on the lives of Black folks in terms of how many people we're going to lose. Because your background is in public health, can you talk a little bit about the disproportionate impact in terms of Black folks dying from COVID-19 versus our, our white and our Asian American colleagues in this country?
1: Sure. I mean, COVID, um, you know, is really a virus that loves people being in close proximity. The higher the density, the more people are close to each other, which is why we talk about physical and social distancing being necessary, um, the more people are going to be impacted. So if African Americans are more incarcerated disproportionately and COVID likes people being in close proximity, now you know why Many, many of our incarcerated folks are being impacted by COVID-19. Um, we know many African-Americans, Latino, Latina, Latina uh, folks of color are also you know, essential workers. They aren't able to be behind a computer like we are having a good time, having a good conversation. They have to go drive that bus. They have to go clean that facility so they're more exposed to the virus and, and even medical workers. Also more exposed, particularly when you're talking about get to your nurses, your orderlies, you got a lot of people of color in those communities. They maybe didn't get the N95 and the other type of fancy equipment that the doctors got. They were stuck with whatever they could get early in the pandemic, and then they were taking it home, and then you had household spread. This happened to my family in Texas where I had, you know, my mother's a physician's assistant, uh, my sister's training to be a nurse, and... You know, so they had to work and be out serving patients, and then household uh, spread of COVID hit and like 10 people down in Texas and my family ended up uh, contracting the novel coronavirus. So it's exposure, it's proximity, it's vulnerability in terms of labor, and all of those factors really concentrated and came together to make COVID-19 deadly, more deadly for Black, Brown, Native Americans, and others in our society.
0: One of the important things for us is to make space to have these conversations. We know that part of the work that we're all called to do is to use what I call our time, our talents, and our treasure to help to make Baltimore City better. That, that's the PK in me coming out. Time, talent, treasure. I wanna go back to Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown, could you help us to just kind of bring it into to our time together? Let's give us some actual working solutions. What can we do to make immediate changes? Dr. Brown?
1: Absolutely. I, I saw in the chat, you know, someone, I believe it was brother Mark Jews said, you know, we need a more immediate plan. And I just wanna be sure, you know, to say what I'm laying out, I think, is both short term and long term. And hopefully, uh, you know, we do move with a sense of urgency, um, because as we saw last year after the murder of George Floyd, you know, America is not done with uprising. It's just had a Jim Crow coup on January 6th, you know, with folks trying to take and make um, keep America great, you know, so we're not done with this history of violence. Not just at the local level, but at the national political level, this is a wound that America must heal, and Americans have to be serious about confronting this history. I also, saw someone mention, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins paying reparations, and I, and they do for you know specific things, especially like you know the Henrietta Lacks using her cervical cancer cells without her permission, you know, restoring and making her family whole, and other issues that they've also been engaged in. But there's actually something much more mundane that I think Hopkins and another institution you might know should also be doing. And it's really found here in this paper or report called Burdening Baltimore by National Nurses United and the groups here released a couple years ago. And it talks about how so many of the private institutions in Baltimore do not pay their fair share of taxes. And if we go to this page right here, lo and behold, what we find is that these institutions collectively are paying roughly five cents on every dollar worth of taxes that they should be paying so this is a this is roughly 115 million dollar gap or 113 million dollar gap that of funds that should be going of money that should be going into the general fund and so when you're talking about making black neighborhoods matter Pay your taxes. And I believe we saw another institution that we, some of you should be very familiar with on this. Let's see, we got uh, University of Maryland, MedStar, St. Agnes, uh, Bon Secure. I, I think we can Dunham. all read oh, that. Loyola University, we have Loyola on the table as yeah, well.
0: Yeah, I, I think we can all read that. Thank you, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just saying that if the, and, and it's not the primary offender, by and large, the biggest offender is Johns Hopkins. So what we're saying is, what does that impact? Public schools, we mentioned that earlier. You want money for public schools? Pay, we need private corporations that pay their taxes because that's money that should go to the general fund to pay for better schools, parks and rec centers, libraries for our children and for adults, resources that people need that come from city government, transit, the black butterfly circulator. These are things that if we had money, a lot of people talk about Baltimore as a poor city, no. It's a city where corporations, large corporations, do not pay their fair share of taxes. That's the number one thing I would recommend is actually how do we change that, laws like that? And we see, I'll close with this, that the institution of Baltimore apartheid was very, very surgical. Policies, practices, systems, and budgets. And therefore, our solutions have to be just as surgical. We have to go in and zoom in to policies, practices, systems, and budgets, taxes, who's paying them, who's not, who's getting breaks, who's not. All of these things matter. So the solution, as I see it, is start where you are. It's great that we have so many people that go out and join Black Lives Matter marches when police violence dies or comes out and people die. But if you're in a medical institution, you got racism there. If you let at a private institution like Loyola, you got racism there. If you on the board of a school or PTA, you got racism there. Start where you are in analyzing how white supremacy racism is undermining black lives, destroying black neighborhoods, and do the work to make black neighborhoods and black lives matter. Thank you all. I really appreciate this invitation. Thank you, Dr. K for a wonderful, wondrous conversation.
0: Now, Dr. Brown, um, which I appreciate your thank you. I'm so glad you can join us. But someone has just sent me a note and I would be remiss if I did not have you comment on one more thing. Okay. I did not put on the table. We did not talk about policing. And we know people talk about defund the police, abolish the police and people get scared about that. I'd like you to speak about that. I was on with DeRay McKesson yesterday and one of the things he noted is that more black people were killed in 2020 than in 2018 by the police. Like we marched in protest, but the deaths of unarmed black people did not go down. So can you also, before we go, I have to have you talk about policing under the ways in which we transform this city.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'll briefly say, you know, policing is rooted in slavery, slave patrols, slave catching, law enforcement returning black people back to their slave masters and making sure that black people did not engage in rebellions, resistance, and revolution. So policing is rooted in that. So it's ultimately an institution that cannot go on the way that it has been going on for the past 150 plus years in America. In my book, i call for getting rid of the Baltimore Police Department. And you can either do it swiftly are over time, but if you did it swiftly, 11.59 PM, we disband the Baltimore police department. What that helps to do is also address an ancillary issue, which is really a powerful issue. A lot of people don't understand. And that is police unions, particularly fraternal order police. They help put policies in place like preventing police officers from being investigated. You got the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which is being debated right now in Annapolis, was watered down from what I understand from Senator our State Senator Joe Carter. Those are things we have to eliminate. But at the local level, if you got rid of the Baltimore Police Department, it would disband also that police union, which is really what has to happen. And then at 12 o'clock midnight, which is the next day, one minute later, you bring back maybe the officers that you can that are that we can work with, but you do that with a new agency called the Baltimore Peace Building Authority. So I'm saying we got to retire and dismantle policing, start afresh with a peace building authority. And these will be officers that have the mandate of actually building peace. And how do you do that? They will have a public health orientation. They will be going into communities to help mitigate, excuse me, mitigate violence, solve violence and not uh engage in violence, have very strict laws and regulations around how they can engage in the use of force. Um, but working with communities, getting back to I think what the Black Panthers and many others had as a model of community control, this time of police, of peace building and not police scene. So I think you know, I try to wrestle with that question a lot more in my book. I just encourage people to do that because like you say it's it's an issue that's very fraught and there are a lot of discussions and i think my thing was in the book uh if we're going to say abolish then we need to say what comes after it and that's what i tried to do and say here's my vision of what can come after policing peace building
0: thank you so much dr lawrence brown he's the founder of the black butterfly academy and the author of the black butterfly the harmful politics of race and space in America. Thank you for joining us for this colloquium. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely.